week one of a new series. If, uh, if someone has been bringing you and you kind of caught the tail end of the last series, uh, we are starting something fresh and new this morning. So this is your first Sunday. You are walking into week one. If you were here for the last series, uh, we do things different from time to time. Last series, uh, Prayers for the Church, is what we'd call a topical series. I moved around the Bible, selecting different scriptures, trying to be true to the text, but the things I was praying for on behalf of the church, I was trying to root the, the prayers into a piece of scripture and just not have my prayers be simply based on feelings or emotions or the mood of the day, but it, it moved through various texts of the scripture. This is kind of different. I'm not projecting anything onto the book. We're going to let the book speak to us. So we're going to dig into the book of Philippians. We're going to dig passage by passage, moving our way through. Some of you may have brought your notebooks and your pens. You're going to scribble. Uh, I don't know about you. I mark my Bible up. I, I know there are people who are like, oh, I couldn't. It's the Word of God. Well, the words of God are in the text, but I can buy another $10 Bible when I burn through this one. But in Philippians, when I go there, I've got circles and marks and highlights and arrows and things for me because this isn't just an old ancient book. It's the living word. It's active. And so for me, if it's active, I want to interact with it. So whether you mark up your Bible or whether that's not your jam and you want to bring a, a 99-cent notebook with you and pen— this would be a great series to scribble notes, write things down, uh, and then you actually collect a bit of a journal or a bit of a library of things you're learning, not just things I'm teaching you about the Bible. And so we're going to dig in Philippians uh, chapter 1, verse 1 in just a moment. So if you want to find that, that's New Testament, about halfway through it. But, but the question should be answered first, why Philippians? I mean, if you come to church and you know we've selected a, a number of books of the Bible, and kind of why do we do that? The reason I selected Philippians, uh, not just because I really enjoy digging into it, but Philippians is a book that is written primarily to people that Paul loves, and he is teaching them how to walk in unity, love, and holiness in a non-Christian culture. The church in Philippi is in a Romanized community. They are not favorable of the gospel or the name of Jesus being preached, proclaimed, and advanced. And he's trying to help them walk out their faith in the face of opposition. That's as relevant today as it has ever been, is it not? <clears throat> but part of the deal, like it's not just, he's not just rolling out like instructions. The, there's a real maturing that's happening both in the church but also the way Paul is writing to them. If you have dabbled in Philippians before, you may have heard people talk about like a great basics of the faith or a great introduction to the faith. Uh, Philippians, maybe more than any other book of Paul, is littered full of coffee cup verses. Do you know what I mean by that? Like you probably have a painting or a mug with the verse, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Like, the, the, all through, as we go through this, you're like, oh, I know that verse. Oh, I've heard that before. I didn't know it was from Philippians. But here's the deal. Please don't mistake the ease of readability with the ease of walking it out. I think what has happened sometimes is people read it. It's like, well, that makes a lot of sense to me. It's encouraging. It's uplifting. Like, that's a great one for the basics of the faith. I would beg to differ. I, I actually do not think it's the most accessible book 
from new believers. I actually think it's written to people who are maturing and maturing even further. Like people who are digging in their faith. Now, if you're new, you can dig into it. But if you find yourself pushing back from like, boy, I don't know if I believe that. Like next week, Paul's going to say, I could live or die, each is equally good. A sentence I have never said a day in my life. So if you feel like it's super easy to read and understand, but it's tugging at you, that's fine. That's fair. It is a mature book written to a mature bunch of people, but yes, it is very accessible to read and to dig into. So we're going to pull it into this book. We're going to start right in Philippians uh, chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, I've told you before, I preach from the ESV, but if you have NIV, NLT, King James, New King, whatever, that's fine. But if you find some spots that are clunky or doesn't exactly match yours, uh, that's why. Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're new to Scripture, you have the authors mentioned first. Paul and Timothy to the church in Philippi. Often you'll see Paul by himself or Paul every once in a while with somebody else. Nobody actually believes Timothy is a co-writer as much as Paul is tipping the cap or honoring Timothy who's kind of riding shotgun with him on his missionary journeys. And the church in Philippi, they know Timothy. They've met him before. So it's Paul and Timothy to the church in Philippi. Now, if you want to do some extra digging, you can go back to Acts chapter 16. If you go to Acts 16, you will find where Paul begins his ministry with this group of people. If you read the New Testament, it's not uh, in chronological order, event after event after event after event. This is a bit crude, but it does cover the big point. Acts is kind of the broad story of the New Testament, and then Paul's letters and journey fit inside the book of Acts. So don't read the New Testament uh, like Acts happened, and then the adventures of Paul happened. It's Acts is happening, and you could almost stack Paul's 13 letters. We could stack them inside, and they would shuffle into the cr- chronological order of Acts. So Philippians uh, is about the stories and the events that happened back in 16. And what, in 16, if you read it, Paul is there in Philippi. He's ministering, and he's leading people to Christ. There's Lydia, this woman who's uh, a wealthy woman, uh, selling material all through the area. She comes to faith in Christ. Paul leads a demonic young girl to faith in Christ. There's ministry that's happening. And then later on his journey, he's writing back to the people that he knows and loves well. Then you have that classic greeting by Paul, grace and peace to you. Scan through Paul's letters and notice how many times he says the same thing over and over again. Some of you tease me for saying things like, are you tracking? Are you listening? That's familiarity. That's taglines. Paul is doing his usual tagline except for one detail. If you like Pauline literature, you will notice he often says Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, except he doesn't. It's not there. You go through a bunch of his letters, and more often than not, you will find Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. It's not there this time. It's Paul and Timothy. 
And we don't know for sure, but one of the things we believe about this letter is that, Paul, and you're going to see in a second, Paul is deeply familiar and has great love and history with this people. So it's almost like Paul saying, it's me, Paul, you know who I am. It'd be like me getting up every Sunday and be like, hello, good, glad to see you this morning. My name is AJ, and I am the pastor of this church. He's like, okay, buddy, like, we get it. And there's a familiarity with this group that it's almost like he's not flexing or reminding, like, it's Paul, an apostle. He, he just cuts to it. It's Paul, you know me. And I'm writing to you grace and peace. There's this, there's this warmth right out of the intro. Shift down with me to verse 3. We're still in the greetings. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. You can circle the first coffee mug verse. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in my defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Your English Bibles make that a touch more accessible for you. That is yet again another gigantic Paul run-on sentence. If you read that in the Greek, it's convoluted, it's layered, the subjects are flip-flopping, like it does not pass scholastically. It does not pass academically. This is just Paul yet again, as he'll do later in other chapters and in other books of the Bible, where he gets writing, the emotions get stirring, and the pen starts going really fast. So your English translators came along and put periods in there to help it be a bit more readable, but when you read that, you should be feeling emotion stirring. And if I know anything about Wesleyans, emotions stir in worship. That's why sometimes I know I rev a little hot sometimes when I'm preaching. And then I go to Paul. That's all right. If it's good for Paul. It's good for me. There is something as the affections are stirring, his pen just starts rolling. If you read that again this afternoon, look at the language that he writes. This does not sound like Paul. Go read Galatians after where Paul's kind of hard charging, punching a little bit to say, knock it off. Read Corinthians. One guy coined Corinthians, church gone wild. It is not go and do likewise. And then you come to Philippians, and it says things like, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer. Like he is hammering down, always, all the time, in all my prayers, I'm thankful for you. I pray with joy. Then he says later, it's right that I feel this way for you. I hold you in my heart. I yearn with all the affection of Christ Jesus. Do you hear it? This is a relationship. This is a, a one, one, one commentator called it a love letter to this church. He is not coming 
to solve their problems first and foremost. It's affections. It's fatherly, brotherly, friendly, back and forth. You go to Acts 16, like I said, you can find the history. You go to Philippians chapter 4, and we'll get there in a few weeks. He even says, like, I remember when you sponsored me, you fed me, you sent me money when nobody else did. Paul traveling around the world on his own, but the church in Philippi said, Paul, we got you. We care about you. Here's Epaphroditus. He'll bring you gifts. Here's some money. And Paul's like, man, when nobody was there for me. Sure, everyone's there for me now. I mean, I'm Paul, but when I was a nobody, the church in Philippi was there for me. Do you hear the affections? This won't happen very often, so grab it while it happens. I deeply love you, church. <laughs> for real. I, I, was, I was on the road a bit this week, and all I could see when I thought of Yarmouth Wesleyan was a hundred problems that I had to solve. Do you ever get that way about your own family? Got to fix this, and got to fix that, and got to tackle this, and got to tackle that. And I was on the road this week thinking about you all, and all I could see was all the work that was yet to be done. And then I look at Philippians, and he's just gushing about his great love. At the end of the day, I deeply love you. Part of what happened for, for Paul is that he ministered there around 49 A.D., so if Jesus died around 33 AD, Paul is ministering in Acts 16 around 49 AD. So 15, 16 years has passed. But the, but the letter to the Philippians isn't until around 62 AD. His journey with the church at Philippi, even though he wasn't there all the time, is now spanning 12, 13 years of him knowing these people. I've known many of you going on 20 years now. I interned here in 2004 when I didn't know left from right. I, I know left from right like a little bit now if I put the L up in front of me. You guys took a chance on me. You guys have given me a home time and time again. I have said the most outlandish and inappropriate things up here before. I didn't mean to. I just got revved up a little bit. And you guys keep coming back. You keep showing grace. You keep showing me love over and over and over again. But hopefully, you can feel it's reciprocated back and forth. This might be the quietest room I've ever been affectionate to. <laughs> and you are very unnerving right now. It, it has been a delightful journey to journey with you. And God's not done. God is doing a really great thing, but there's something about Paul with that longevity that I would beg to say he can't say some of these things earlier in his ministry. Deep affections take time, does it not? Trust takes time. Chemistry and unity and holiness together takes time. And I was so encouraged, like, Paul, you are such an example of what it means to be a spiritual father to a group of people. All right, that's done, done being affectionate. Let's get into digging again. In 12 through 19, we come to the first, like, real heartbeat of the book. So he's done the welcome, I love you, I appreciate you, thank you for the ministry. Then verse 12, he starts to dig. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. 
And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Here we go. Paul says, for what has happened to me? You know, some of you have been in church, you know what's happened to Paul, right? He is imprisoned in chains and in jail. I think when you first come to Philippians and you read it through, what you'll find is rejoice and joy and rejoice always. And again, I'll say rejoice. And people like Philippians because it's so uplifting. And at first glance, you might think Paul is writing to people in difficult situations for how to have joy, but it's actually not that. It's Paul writing and teaching about how he is having joy in difficult circumstances. It's easy to have joy in great circumstances, isn't it? Nobody in this church has ever called me to say, Pastor, I know you're busy. Just want to let you know I've got a perfect marriage. Pastor, I know you have a lot on the go. Just want to tell you my kids are without flaw. Click. I'm still waiting for this phone call. Hey, Pastor, my boss just gave me a $15,000 raise. Click. Nobody ever calls me to say, life is supreme. What shall I do, Pastor? (laughs) I've never had that meeting. Pastor, I have too much money. I need your advice. Not yet, not now, maybe not ever. And yet, when the marriage goes sideways, Pastor, I need to see you right now. Pastor, the kids are going through a difficult situation. I need to see you. Pastor, I don't don't have $10,000. I need advice. Nobody needs advice on the mountaintop, it seems. And as soon as life goes sideways and it gets difficult, isn't that where the rubber meets the road? Isn't that where you feel pressed in on every side? But Paul's not writing to them because they're pressed in on every side. He's writing to them this great work from a perspective where he is pressed in on every side. That's entirely different. I can tell you to have faith while you're suffering and I'm on the mountaintop. That's a different message, is it not? I can tell you to trust in God when I'm not facing opposition, but you are. That's a different message. What does it sound like when I'm being pressed and you're not, and I say trust in God? So Paul's not coming to you as one who isn't facing difficult circumstances to say have joy. He is saying, listen, as I sit in this Roman prison, in chains— And the probability of me being released is equal as me being killed. Now, let me talk to you about having joy. How does that sound, church? Anyone here facing difficult circumstances? Anyone here feel like from time to time life can press you from all sides? Everyone in here feel like you've got doctor's appointments that are causing stress and anxiety, bills that are paying up, decisions that you've got to make. Like, I don't know what to do. Hear the words of someone sitting in a jail cell. Don't hear my words. Hear Paul's words. 
And Paul says, I have adopted God's perspective. This is why I'm telling you, this is, this is not for the faint of heart. When you read 12 through 19, like, church, what has happened to me is doing amazing things through the region. I don't know about you, but isn't it true that when opposition happens, we immediately view how it's affecting us? Anybody here? You face opposition, you face difficulty, and immediately your question is, how am I going to handle this? What does this mean for me? I'm not even implying that's a, not a good question to ask, but Paul's first wiring and perspective is I'm a slave and a servant to Christ Jesus. How many times have you opened a letter from Paul? Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Notice how many times in his letters he's referred to as a servant or a slave, or he talks about, I'm not my own anymore. And sitting in that jail cell, I bet you he is tempted to wallow I bet you he is tempted to have self-pity. I almost guarantee if Jesus standing in the Garden of Gethsemane asked that this cup should pass, is it not fair to say that Paul may have prayed similar prayers that we don't have? Paul is in prison not because he broke a law. He is in prison for doing what I am doing right now. That's why he's in jail. Is it not plausible that while in jail, he didn't feel tempted to whisper to a guard or, I'll stop preaching. <laughs> Just let me out. There's no social media. He could have got out, traveled five miles down the road, and started his ministry up again. Is it not fair that Paul be like, no more. Timothy should be here. <laughs> Let's get Barnabas the encourager in here and see how he deals with that. There's something that has shifted inside Paul that says, I'm not my own. There's something inside Paul that says, God, since I belong to you, what do you want to do while I'm in this place? Write some letters? Deal. That's not how I deal with opposition. That's not how I deal with difficulty. I'm not prone to say, God, my life is not my own. What do you want to do while I find myself in this situation that did not surprise you? I don't find myself doing that. Paul finds himself doing that. The second thing we see Paul doing while he's in this state is he sees every situation with a gospel filter. Some of you don't know this, but I, I, I need glasses or contacts. I, I'd be... I'd be Squinting at you this entire time, you'd be just fuzzy images. You'd be equally as quiet, but just fuzzy. <laughs> we walk around with glasses and contacts on every single day, do we not? Every day you walk around with a soundtrack or a narrative, like I said last week, every single day you live with that going on. I realized one of my false narratives during the pandemic. I don't know if this hit you or not. This narrative, I did not know how loud it was until the pandemic. 
the narrative I was living by the last two and a half years is if God is good, then I should live the good times. I don't know where it came from. I mean, I know there's difficulty in life, but I still kind of somewhere in my theology worked into my head, God, you're good, so I should experience your goodness all of the time. Ever been there? And I realized that that's a false narrative. I realized when some of you bring up opposition to things that we're doing or things that I'm saying or things that we do as a church, I kind of thought in my head, I adopted this, and I'm a pastor's kid, that Christians should be nice and get along all the time. I don't know where that came from. And then I was walking one day, and God just, as loud as anything he's ever said, he said to me, what do you think you signed up for? Those are filters that I see the world through. Paul's filter that he sees the world is, I'm in prison, and all I can see is how the gospel is advancing. Oh, church, if there is something the modern church needs is a gospel filter over life. We are severely malnourished in gospel language. Now, please let me clarify this. We, we get into some trouble here, especially in Southwest Nova. Do not confuse the gospel with the salvation message. I'm bumping into this a lot lately. The salvation message is how does a sinner come into the kingdom and to heaven someday? Grace of Jesus, faith in him to forgive us of our sins. That is the salvation message. That's not the gospel. That's part, that's like a chapter of the gospel. The gospel is that our good God is renewing all things. What does it mean, yes, the salvation message inside the gospel, but what does it mean to see life, blessing, curse, and opposition through a gospel filter? Paul says, if I'm in chains... And that still advances the gospel because everybody's chatting about me. Did you hear about that preacher? That preacher got arrested. Hey, did you, did you hear about that guy? You know, Saul, the one that wreaked havoc on us for years and years and years. Like, that guy became a Christian, and he got arrested, and all of a sudden, all the tweets are flying around. The shares have just gone viral. Paul's in jail. Paul said, listen, if I've got to sit here so the gospel explodes out there, then I'll take that. Your life speaks way more than just your life. Your life speaks a gospel message. The opposition you're going through has gospel implica implications. What your family going through has gospel implications. The opposition you're facing might not be just about the opposition you're facing. It may be telling a bigger story, and people will testify to your story more than you realize. Imagine in a small town like Yarmouth that makes its money off gossip, imagine if they had gospel gossip narratives to live by. Imagine if they weren't just chatting about the stupidity they're so prone to chat about. See, I say outlandish things from time to time. <laughs> what if we gave them gospel subjects to chat about? Did you hear about that church? Did you hear about that family? Did you hear what they're up to? Did you hear the opposition that came against that church? 
We want the gospel to advance. Amen, church? And Paul says, if I've got to be in chains, so be it. Now here's the third thing that Paul has adopted. Paul knows his life is not just his own. It's not just a gospel filter, but his very life no longer belongs to him. He says later, he says, you know, since I've been here, people all over the place are chatting about me, and I'm hearing specifically that many of them are increasing in their boldness. Isn't that interesting? Wouldn't it be that if a local preacher in Southwest Nova got arrested for preaching, wouldn't you think the other preachers would kind of clam up a little bit for fear of also being arrested? Wouldn't that be a logical narrative? Paul says, because I've been arrested, because of how I'm suffering, the other brothers and sisters are being emboldened to do likewise. Now, ah, yeah, I got, I got a minute. This is at this point where someone's going to email me and say, see, pastor, you should have stood up to the government when they tried to shut you down during COVID. <laughs> if you want to email me that, I, you can. My email is davehawkley at gmail.com. <laughs> but while I've got you here, this is really important because some of you are going to want to message me like, quit being a wuss, pastor. Please hear me. Please hear me. He was arrested for preaching Jesus' name. That's not what I was facing for the last two years. Do not confuse, do not confuse inconvenience with opposition and persecution. They're not the same. So if you want to email me that I was a chicken, feel free. I just won't respond to you because you heard me loud and clear. When I get arrested or when the government says, thou shalt not use the name of Jesus, then they can arrest me. I was preaching, we were proclaiming the name of Jesus all over the internet for two years. More people heard me talk about faith in Jesus the last two years than will hear me the next two years. So please don't confuse what Paul was doing with what the church had to navigate in incredibly complicated times for which there was no playbook. So just, there's a free sermon inside the sermon. There you go. See, we love each other, right? Boy, that one got a lot less amen. <laughs> Good thing I have an extended call here. And the DS is here. Good to have you here, DS. Paul's life, Paul's life, and I'm not here, church, just so you know, I'm not here. I don't have the strength yet to say whatever comes my way as long as others are strengthened. I'm not there yet. But church, people are not watching just how we walk out the good days with Jesus. They're not as curious if we can stand and raise our hands and worship when everything is up and to the right. That's not that compelling. What is wildly compelling is can this church do what the capital C church has done for 2,000 years and worship and have our faith be real in the face of opposition and difficult times? People will not watch how you succeed and connect that to your faith. They'll watch how you suffer and connect that to your faith. 
Church, we must suffer well. We must face difficulty well. It preaches. So church, here's my closing questions for your practice during the week. In the words of Paul, what has happened to you? Not, not like where are you at with your state. What has happened to you? What, what season of life are you in? in? In that verse, Paul says, I want you to know that what has happened to me, I am currently in prison facing possible death. That is what has happened to me. I, I worry sometimes when Christians think they have to take a false op- optimism to name the season they're in. That's not faith. Church, you are allowed to name the season you're in with brutal honesty, and in fact, God requires it. Not every season is summer, church. Not every season is God is good all the time, all the time God is good. What is true may be difficult to be expressed when you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. You are allowed to be angry. You are allowed to have doubt. You are allowed to question. And what might be true up here, you might just know, I just, I, just can't, I just can't name it right now. That's what we're for as the body of Christ to come around you. Name the season. What has happened to you? And if it is summer, praise the Lord. But if you're in a difficult season, name it as such. The second question for your reflection, after you name the season you're in, what filter are you using to see the events around you? Don't grin and bear it. I think the sermon I received the most feedback from was the sermon on lament. I've had more emails and texts and comments about lament because not because it was a good sermon. (laughs) They're very clear about that point. The number one comment I've received is, thank you for giving me permission to lament. What filter are you using to see the season? Don't grin and bear it. Don't white knuckle it. Don't chin up, bucko. You can do it. Don't do that. Use a gospel filter to see what's going on around you. What might God be doing in this season? Well, that was my third question. I bled right into it. Church, what is God up to? Not what is AJ up to. Not what are you up to. Not how hard can you fight against it. Pause and sit for a second with God's eyes and perspective. God, what are you doing in this season? Heavenly Fathers, we come before you this week. We claim your goodness. We live in a fallen, broken world, but we claim that you are good. When our feelings try to betray us, when our motivation is zero, when we just want to sit down and quit, maybe all we can claim is that, God, you're good. God, would you give us your eyes to see? Would you give us your perspective? Would you give us a heart and passion for the gospel? And would you give us the strength, and I mean strength, to open up and say, God, may it be your will. What are you trying to teach me and show me this season? And we ask these things in the good name of Jesus. Amen.